Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show, New Zealand's aviation podcast series. If you have not already done so, please check out our extensive archive of past shows, either on the Wings Over Cambridge website or on iTunes. Please rate the show on iTunes and leave a review there. And please like our Facebook page. You can find us at www.facebook.com slash show. That's W-O-N-Z-S-H-O-W. You can rate and review the shows there on Facebook, or you can go to the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, where there's a whole little section just for the show. The Wings Over New Zealand show is brought to you in association with the Wings Over New Zealand Aviation Forum, New Zealand's number one aviation discussion forum online. There you'll find discussion on all aspects of New Zealand aviation, from history to current affairs and thousands of photos covering the Royal New Zealand Air Force, airlines, general aviation, warbird restorations, air show news, sport aviation, home building, gliding, aviation media and much, much more. You'll be in good company with other aviation enthusiasts, including pilots, engineers, warbird owners and restorers, historians and authors, modelers, aviation photographers and many others. Sign up to the Wings Over New Zealand community now. It's free and easy. Just Google Wings Over New Zealand and you'll find the forum. Hi, it's Matt Jolly from WarbirdRadio.com. Listen, I am thrilled to have Dave Homewood as part of our broadcast family and bring your stories, the stories of the RNZAF, heard right here on Wings Over New Zealand to our global audience. Thanks for listening and hope to hear from you sometime at WarbirdRadio.com. G'day, I'm Steve Vischer. And I'm Grant McCarran. And we're from Plane Crazy Down Under, Australia's aviation show. And you can find us at planecrazydownunder.com. We reckon for the best coverage of the Kiwi Warbird restoration and aviation scene, you can't go past Dave Homewood and the Wings Over New Zealand show. On you, Dave. Yeah, good on you, mate. Yeah, we've got to get to New Zealand soon. Where is that anyway? Well, it's where I grew up. I thought that was Brisbane. This is Extended, the ETOPS Aviation Podcast. Here's Peter Johnson. We're in front of the Merlin. Can you tell us a little bit about the aircraft? What aircraft did you fly before? Uh, Sohoi 22. Right, okay. That's quite an interesting aircraft. Mm-hmm. What was that like to fly? Faster. Yeah. <laughs> Gareth Stringer. Make no bones about it. This is still a very capable aircraft. The cockpit's very cramped, you've got leg restraints on, you're sat on a seat that's got explosives in it. Tim Robinson. Uh, also the A400M, got to go inside and uh, have a poke around with. Just uh, taking me on the trip of our lifetime in a F-18F Super Hornet. Aviation-extended.co.uk And remember, there's no E at the beginning of Extended. Extend it. The Wings Over New Zealand show would like to acknowledge the great support it's had from Fly DC3. You can fly back in time with Fly DC3 from Ardmore Airport, charter the DC3 Dakota and fly into the past. It's an experience you'll never forget. Fly DC3. Go to www.flydc3.co.nz Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.
Welcome to the Wings Over New Zealand show. I'm your host, Dave Homewood. In this episode, I'm pulling out an old interview from my archives, an interview that I did with my friend, the late Don McKenzie, way back in August 2009. Don was a Royal New Zealand Air Force pilot who had quite an extraordinary career, and he was involved in all sorts of things during World War II that you normally don't ever hear about. Don ended up flying around 1,200 hours in 54 different types of aircraft and visiting about 35 different countries. I'm sure you're going to enjoy this one. Over to Don. Oh, well, so I, I was fairly lucky during the war. I was uh, a test pilot in Burma for 18 months, during which time and other times I flew uh, 54 different types of planes, including Mosquitoes, Liberators, Dakotas, Hudsons, and all sorts. Uh, so uh, I, I had some, you know, rather wonderful experiences. One very interesting one was I, uh, when I was in Ceylon or Sri Lanka as it now is, I had to go to Karachi, which was a seven-day uh, train journey, and Indian trains are bloody worse in the world, I would think, or close to it. And uh, I flew this uh, plane, a spotter plane, a Lysander, Western Lysander, rather a, an amazing, unusual plane. And I flew it back to Ceylon uh, for use in Ceylon as an army spotting plane. Though there wasn't much to spot on, on the land side of it in Ceylon. Um, so it was quite a trip, really. And uh, I say, then I, I flew to as pilot to 35 different countries through uh, Europe, Far East and Middle East, Africa. So I was fairly lucky, really. Yeah. Can, can you go right back to your beginning of joining the Air Force and tell me about joining the Air Force? When and, and what? I'd, how I got onto it, I knew nothing. I was a boy from Pew Pew. Pretty remote those days, Pew Pew was. I remember very well the first time I came to Hamilton by train to an excur an excursion train to the Waikato Winter Show, which used to be held in Ward Street those days. And uh, so that was my early days. My, my folk farmed at well, just near Pew Pew, 300 acres. My dad worked very hard in his youth, uh, breaking in 300 land, uh, acres of virgin land. Uh, Easy country, rolling country, not steep, and uh, turned into a you know, pretty nice farm as it is today. So that, I, I went to my primary schooling and uh, two years at high school at Pew Pew. Then my mother sold the farm. Came, we came to live in Hamilton, and I went two years uh, to finish my education at the Hamilton Tech. Um, and then I worked for the Loan and New Zealand Loan and Mercantile Stock Firm, Stock Agency. And one day they were down this bottom end of Victoria Street. And one day I was finishing work and going down Hood Street to, to go home. And I saw these two young chaps in the uniform. I didn't even know what they were. So the next day I told my boss, a chap, Ian Johnson, who actually had a pilot's license in private life. And uh, he said, oh, they would be airmen. And that was my first interest in uh, 
in uh, aeroplanes uh, uh, made an, an interest for me. And I applied, he talked me in then to flying, or to applying for a, um, a, a, the Royal Air Force, Royal New Zealand Air Force Reserve. And like today, very similar history repeating itself, there are very, very few aeroplanes which the Air Force owned. So I actually, I finished up getting into the Air Force uh, only by name. I wasn't, uh, hadn't done any training or anything. And I had to go to night school for 12 months to take some of the subjects which applied to pilots, most of it unnecessary in wartime. So that was my first introduction. And I, uh, I was the third in the third uh, course to train three, number three course. And I finally got into the Air Force and I did a month at Levin, just, uh, you know, learning uh, discipline and that sort of thing. Then I spent uh, two months at Bell Block, near Plymouth, flying uh, tiger moths. And then I was transferred to uh, Blenheim, where we flew wildebeests. And that's where my uh, experience with wildebeests began. Uh, who was on your course then, on that number three course? Who else was it with you? I've got a photograph of the, of the gang here. Uh, for, there was, uh, three of my schoolmates went to tech together here, and uh, we all joined the, the, the same day, so it was pretty good company, knowing four people in a, in a gang of several hundred recruits those days, so uh, we got on pretty well. Right. Uh, though two of them... Instead of going to Blenheim, went to oh, to um, Dunedin, Tyree. So I split up with those, and then we did our training here. Uh, there was twenty-eight on our course training, and after at the end of the war, there was only five of us alive, and today I'm the the last one still here. So I've been fairly lucky, really. And anyway. Uh, I was keen to get to England to fly well, fighters as I'd hoped, but it wasn't a matter of choice, it was a matter of doing what you're told. And I was, and two others were posted to Singapore. And uh, uh, once again, we, we got the lovely old wildebeest. Wildebeest is old, obsolete, but a lovely plane to fly, really. And uh, well, can, can you tell me about your um, introduction to the wildebeest at, at Woodburn and, and your first flight? What was that like? Well, Hard to believe in a sense, the same as was with a tiger moth. Uh, you know, wonderful to think you'd land as successfully. And that, and that happened again along the line so many times. Uh, I, I flew some new plane. I never had... The only instruction I had as a dual control plane was after I'd trained on the wildebeest, which were dual controlled. Uh, the only ones I had were uh, a Liberator and uh, another American plane, uh, Mitchell. And they, they did have dual controls, but of the other 50 odd, uh, there, was, there was no dual control planes. So you had, you had to fight your own battle sort of thing. And the, and the one time I'd done 
or probably oh, well over a thousand hours flying and uh, we were on um, Wildebeest on Coastal Command in Ceylon and uh, we converted to Hudson's and again there was no dual control and this, the CO Wing Commander Willer took uh, Wing Commander Miller took me for half a dozen circuits and landings way in the jungle in Ceylon and right in the middle of a, a strip cleared of the jungle terribly dangerous if you swung in fact I never forget he said to me uh, after he'd given me the instruction on half a dozen landings how to fly it uh, handed it over to me and he said uh, he said don't forget that the Hudson has a bad habit of swinging on takeoff and he said, if you do that here, you'll be history. So I was very pleased I wasn't history. So uh, that, that was my change to twin engine order. Mean, meantime, I did fly uh, in, in Ceylon a, a very gradual stage of learning to fly modern planes. Firstly, I flew the, the Lysander, which was the first plane I flew with a variable pitch airscrew, uh, fixed undercarriage, and then I flew a, a fairy full mount, navy, rather a lovely plane, fairly slow though, single engine and a fighter bomber, never heard of them much, and uh, it had a Merlin engine which was real th something, a uh, Merlin engine, which of course had the variable pitch airscrew and retractable undercarriage. So my process of progress was fairly gradual and in very easy stages. So after that, uh, I, I was then, I, I did, oh, I think 1800 hours on Coastal Command, 1500 of it in Wildebeest. Um, I was then posted to Karachi, to India, in India, and uh, uh, I was there for three or four months, then I, was tra I transferred to, uh, to Calcutta. And in India it was very hard to get uh, a posting to your liking. And uh, by this time I'd learned a, a bit of my way about in the Air Force. And I found out that the easiest way to get publicity or, or transfer to somewhere was to do something against the establishment. So a friend of mine and I went on uh, leave to, to uh, in, in India, uh, Kashmir, and we had 10 days there. And I, I had given, before I'd left um, Karachi to go on that uh, break, I had had to do a court of inquiry into a, a, an Indian pilot who had crashed a tiny trainer plane and flew into a, into a uh, telegraph pole, which of course didn't help things. And uh, I remember I said to him, you know, in, in inquiry, why did he, why did he uh, uh, crash or what happened? He said, well, sir, he said, I was flying at, at 2,000 feet and my uh, altimeter told me I was 200 feet under, under underground, it was wrong, of course, and he said I lost all confidence in my plane, 
and uh, came in and unfortunately I hit the telegraph pole instead of the runway. So uh, that was her story. But uh, an another interesting sideline of the same nature, the Indian Air Force was totally separate from the Royal Air Force. Though when Singapore fell, we were taken over by the Indian Air Force temporarily. And uh, during that, um, well, I wasn't there of course at the time, but the t story which I believe is true, uh, the squadron was moving from Jodhpur, to, uh, halfway to, to Karachi, to uh, Delhi, and um, 12 of them were flying in for rough formation, and uh, the, the CO's engine cut out and he had to land in the desert, and the other 11 pilots landed, force landed alongside of him because they did what the boss did, they did. So uh, that was uh, quite a story. Right. So did they just repair it and then all take off again? Or? I don't know what happened in the end. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine if they're still sitting out there in the desert. I was it was them and not me. I'm <laughs> yeah. um, just taking you back to when you first went to Singapore. Were you um, quite disappointed that you were sent there? Instead I was. Of I was very disappointed. I was, I was mad to get on fighters. But I, I mean, I was very unhappy about being posted to Singapore. Probably saved my life. Because I say, the three of us went to Singapore. I was the only one to, to come out of Singapore. The other two were killed. And uh, of my course in England, they struck a very hard patch flying low-level bombers over France. And uh, they, they unfortunately didn't live terribly long doing that. Very dangerous. Well, incidentally, one of my mates who was a, went to England, Vic Goodwin, he was a, an Englishman actually, had lived in New Zealand most of his life, and he uh, was doing a training trip and he went up above the cloud and he got lost and he flew around, couldn't get down. He finished up over France, uh, the, the complete cloud coverage, and uh, he spent the five years in, in uh, prisoner of war. And he incidentally was in the same prison campus Douglas Bader who was a wonderful man so uh, that's just another point of interest yeah. but so what what date was it when you first went up to Singapore oh, I've got it somewhere the correct date to be it'll be uh, January 1941 was it okay oh, yeah. Not that early. If, oh, yeah. Right. well say I was I was early so you would have been there quite a while before you moved on or in Singapore yeah no I was only there four months all oh, right okay. and now Sing Singapore controlled Hong Kong and Ceylon so uh, once again uh, I trained on the old wildebeest um, Singapore had wildebeest which I was I was post to a hundred squadron which is, has been since the war a very important squadron and uh, then when I got to Ceylon as Ceylon was controlled by Singapore, again I had the old wildebeest. So as I say, I did over 500 hours on coastal command in wildebeest, which was rather scary for a start, the same as it was in New Zealand when I trained at Blenheim, doing uh, cross countries over the Southern Alps, wondering if the engine would keep going, but thank God it always did. Likewise, over the Indian Ocean, uh, you always wear a, 
a life jacket, Mae West, of course, and I often wondered which was, would be the worst if you had to force land, whether uh, to be drowned or to be eaten by sharks. So thank goodness I never, I never had a problem. But they were wonderful, reliable Pegasus engines. So your, your patrols that you were doing from Singapore and from Ceylon out to sea, was there any sense of we're at war or was it more like a peacetime patrol because the Japs weren't in it then, were they? Well, I didn't do any, any patrols in Singapore. I was only learning to, to drop torpedoes and, and depth charges for coastal command. But in the, in the other uh, instance, um, Ceylon, we did standing patrols. There's only about six pilots and, um, and only about six wildebeest. They did have some older planes still. An older plane called a fairy seal was, was uh, very obsolete. The, the wildebeest, you could say, was obsolete. And the fairy seal was even more obsolete. And in Ceylon, they were on float planes for a start. And I did do a few landings on float planes, but only a few. Uh, so our patrols were six to eight hours in length. And on the eight hours, we'd had overlaid tanks. And normally, we'd probably do six to seven hours. And then our mission was in Ceylon that we had to identify all shipping of every kind within a hundred miles of Ceylon. And that was a, a fairly big task because it was, even though the war was on, there saw a lot of movement in shipping. And uh, Trincomalee was the uh, big station on the east coast of Ceylon, a lovely harbour, a very narrow entrance, but a, a very large harbour, very safe. And uh, we had to escort many, many of the big um, civilian ships, of which the famous ones are Queen Mary, Queen Elizabeth, these are all troop ships, New Amsterdam, Aquitania, a very old ship, almost a sister ship to the uh, one that, that struck the iceberg. Titanic. Titanic. Uh, but very obsolete, but... Uh, very busy, and one of those would come to Ceylon approximately every fortnight. One taking troops, laden with troops from Australia and from New Zealand, though the, the big ships never came to New Zealand, they loaded in Sydney. As, uh, Singapore, um, Auckland wasn't big enough, I don't think, to take the, uh, the, the big ships. So that, that was quite, a, quite a, an event, escorting those ships with uh, laden with over a thousand troops on uh, quite a sight and one point of interest maybe when you got more experienced uh, you do the patrol and coming in when you're getting back to, to uh, Ceylon you'd probably you know have a bit, bit of a variance and uh, you could actually fly in formation with the the wildebeest with the Queen Mary or other ship. Uh, the wildebeest, its stalling speed would have been about 45 miles an hour. Uh, and the uh, Queen Mary or Elizabeth would do probably 30 knots at least. And if they were sailing into a, a wind of probably 
20 miles an hour, you could very comfortably sit along, well not, but to fly alongside them in formation and get a wonderful hearing from the, the, the thousand guys on board, something to do waving to us. So it was quite an experience. And, and that, that, they would come to, uh, to uh, Ceylon, uh, say roughly once a fortnight. One, ne never two together because of the danger. And uh, they, they would be taking troops to the Middle East and then returning for another load of troops sort of thing and uh, returning uh, injured um, soldiers to New Zealand. And also of interest was a, a, a lovely hospital ship, Dutch ship called the Orange, O-R-A-N-J-E. And it was a magnificent ship, painted white, it used to sail at night time with the lights blaring. And, and, and hopefully, and luckily it never happened that the enemy, did, they did respect the, uh, uh, what's the name, agreement. Uh, so it, it was quite a sight to see. So did you do night patrols as well? No, 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 not night patrols. But uh, so we did probably say uh, six to seven hours, and we had to identify all the shipping, anything at sea, and we knew where some of them were by uh, information from the naval base, and you'd have to if uh, identify uh, with the colours of the day they would have and very uh, flashes to send signals and if they didn't respond which was quite often the case especially with ships from 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 Europe who were had been in action they they obviously didn't give anything away but if they didn't reply and give you a, an oldest lamp reply uh, you'd have to go down and read the names of the ship which was of course a bit dangerous at times even though most of those ships would only have very light uh, armory, uh, machine gun sort of thing, and uh, so that was a bit, a bit dicey. And sometimes, or several times, along the line, some of us got hit by uh, flak from, uh, but only, only three hundred and three uh, size. So, if if it if it didn't hit anybody, it didn't do a lot of harm. The uh, the wings being fabric, and the wildebeest, so it didn't sort of do a hell of a lot of damage, hopefully. Right. Okay. But, so was the, the worry that there might be German radar ships around like there was in our borders in Australia? Okay. Yes, well, we were told, you know, what, what they, we may uh, uh, strike, but nothing ever important happened. Sometimes you had some ships which, the, see the continental, the, the uh, um, Ships who had been in the thick of it in Europe didn't take, obviously take any risks. So they were a bit trigger happy, uh, but certainly not dangerous. But sometimes uh, they, they wouldn't identify and uh, they would open up on... Uh, and, and in fact, we, one of my three, uh, three of us who went to Singapore, uh, Bruce Lee, he disappeared, unbeknown how, and they think that he might have been shot down. So n never lived... Uh, to tell the story. And then the other chap, uh, Cecil Salt, he was from Christchurch and uh, uh, he disappeared. And once again, we don't know, but we always suspect that it could be Japs, but only hearsay. We didn't 
we didn't have any proof. So did you have to check out every little fishing boat and everything like that? Or no, no, only, only uh, merchant shipping. No, of course there's a small uh, lo local and, and you didn't know, well, being so close to India, you, you don't know what the dickens they were. But no, only, only, only ships of some import, some size. So uh, it wasn't, it wasn't uh, you know, a, a busy area, but still a lot of ships moving. And sometimes we might not get the name and we'd report back and be debriefed and somebody, maybe the same person or the same pilot, would be sent to uh, find that same ship, which was then probably eight hours later, so it probably moved 100, 100 odd miles and so it was a hell of a, and you didn't know what route they were taking after we had, had spotted them. So it was a bit of a wild goose chase, but you'd you'd have to, you know, do your best to try and find them. And and by that time, you you would be in a, always in a plane with overload tanks in case you had to do the do the uh, extra mileage. And the one instance was uh, Christmas Day, nineteen forty-two. And I had done the patrol in the morning and reported the one ship described that no, I don't think it had a name, didn't find a name. Uh, we went down and uh, no, we couldn't, we couldn't read the name. So anyway, we got sent out that eight hours or ten hours later to, to find it, which we did find. And when it came back, it was in the, in the dark. Uh, at Trincomalee, we also some of the time stationed at Colombo, and if we got caught short, we'd probably land at Colombo if we're coming from the east uh, to save a journey overland to Trincomalee. So uh, anyway, on that Christmas Eve, uh, I landed after dark. Found luckily by more or less good luck, found the aerodrome. Uh, and you could pick it up a lot by the the lights of the towns, and you could see the 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 shoreline. And the the aerodrome wasn't uh, there wasn't any runways, just soil. And uh, I I landed in the dark. It wasn't sort of black. It was reasonably light. You could see you could almost see your way, and. Uh, um, more or less a blind landing, and uh, when I pulled up, I got bogged in the in the wet soil. So uh, uh, that was, I think, probably nine o'clock at night, and uh, I never forget it. Christmas, uh, nineteen forty-two, and anyway, got, went to the mess. And of course, by this time, Christmas celebrations were on, and all the other guys were under the weather a little bit, and. Uh, I will never forget. We had a, our, our adjutant was an English tea planter uh, pre-war, and uh, he was quite a good guy. But he'd had a few drinks that he he reckoned that the the, the aerodrome was um, fenced about six foot high fencing and wire netting and a Gurkha patrol. And in his cantankerous mood, he reckoned the Gurkhas weren't doing their job. 
Um, so he decided to go out and spy on them, which he did, and they they caught up with him and you know stop who goes there sort of thing, and he didn't stop, he kept going, and they put a shot through into him, and by a miracle he wasn't badly hurt. It went the top part of his leg and came out the other side, missed the bone. And it was all hushed up, nothing was ever said about it. So it saved a lot of embarrassment and, and, and problems to the ones concerned. So, and I'll never forget, we had a, a, a great chap, the doctor was a, an Irishman from Southern Ireland. He'd been in the Air Force about 10 years, but um, uh, uh, Doc Groves. And uh, anyway, at a later stage, one day I was duty officer on duty on, on a Sunday, I think it was, and I saw this old wildebeest taxi out at, at a distance and didn't know who was flying. Shouldn't have been anybody flying, and I should have known for information being the duty officer. And uh, I couldn't identify the pilot because he had a, an unusual little... A fabric uh, helmet and a small man he was and uh, uh, I didn't know who it was and so real panic I rang the CO who lived off the station he came roaring down and a real panic set in and uh, J John Chamberlain who was a nephew of Neville Chamberlain's he was a pilot who I knew extra well but couldn't acknowledge him I know him in his little uh, funny helmet. So he he went off on the loose and uh, he beat up Trincomalee in the harbour and the naval base and the Air Force and by this time they had the the uh, army ambulance and fire engine and the navy fire engine and engine on the alert waiting for him to land. Well he, he flew away for about two hours and he came back and I've got the photograph in my album of the wildebeest where he was, he was low flying on his girlfriend's home on the waterfront and he struck a palm tree. And I've got a photograph, uh, you can see the wing is not badly damaged by a miracle. And anyway, he went away, uh, disappeared for some time, came back and then he dived on the drone. By this time, everybody was out looking. Airmen are out on the, on the high spots watching and thinking it's going to be a crash for certain. And anyway, he dived on the, plane, on the uh, drone and failed to pull out in time sort of thing. And his, uh, one of his wheels, which is a fixed undercarriage, struck a big boulder, massive boulder, and it, a terrific bang when it burst the tyre and he pulled up and the uh, uh, blown tyre and the strut fell off the wildebeest, which spelt, you know, f uh, real danger. So anyway, he, went again. he didn't know he'd, he'd done it to that extent. He flew away and uh, finally came back and everybody was on the alert. The fire engines started up and the ambulances and he came in to land on one wheel, which he did successfully. He ran along probably a hundred yards on one wheel and then it, it uh, uh, lost speed and 
it nosed into the ground and uh, he was, I've got the photograph of uh, the plane standing up on, on, on his nose. And that, that was uh, uh, then held an investigation into it and the, the, the people on it were always on the investigation were officers from Navy, Army and Air Force and uh, he, uh, he knew them all sort of thing. And all he got penalised was six months seniority of rank. And if it had been England, he would have been out on his ear yeah. and lost everything, yeah. including his commission. So uh, such was life in Ceylon. Ceylon was a lovely place. People were very nice. The locals were very nice people, really. And the tea, talking of the tea planters, they were also, most of them, uh, sort of taken into the Air Force to do their job. And um, they were very good to airmen and, and others, of course. Uh, they had a, an exhibition tea plantation where they had everything English, the best of everything English. And uh, we used to go there for a week's leave and uh, at, uh, no, no charge. So we were pretty well off. Uh, and that, that was and the tea plant plantations, which were probably six or seven thousand feet above sea level and a lovely, crisp, clear climate compared with the uh, humid climate at, at uh, sea level. So quite an attraction. Uh, on your patrols, how many crew would you normally take out? A total of three. A, uh, that's all the space there was in, in the uh, old wildebeest. The navigator was just behind you, could speak to you through a tube, no electric communications, and uh, uh, the air gunner was back on the turret, very primitive, and he was back three quarters back to the tail. So there's only room for three. But in the, I did about 200 odd hours in Hudson. Well, of course, you could take up to as many as you want, but once again, we'd only officially have uh, probably three or four at the most. But uh, Hudson was a big jump, lovely plane to fly. There were a lot of people didn't didn't like them, but to me it was a, a wonderful plane to fly after the wildebeest. And the the uh, we as I mentioned before, we had the fairy seals. And occasionally, when we ran out of wildebeest or seals, we'd borrow a, a, a swordfish from the fleet airarm, who were stationed at the same base, of course, and. Uh, Sadly, we were attacked. The Japs came into the war December 1941, was it? And uh, they raided Singapore. Then in the following February, they raided Darwin, and that was pretty badly attacked. And in the Easter 1942, uh, they raided us in Ceylon. And 140 planes or five Jap carriers attacked us. We'd, we'd heard a rumour, our intelligence had told us five weeks earlier that the Japs were assembling a, a fleet which they expected to attack Ceylon and India. And it, by that time that it actually happened, it was Easter time of that same year, and we had sort of everybody had more or less forgotten about or had accepted you know that it was going to happen but never thought it would happen and uh, sure enough 
<coughs> on the Easter Saturday night, we had a station dance and we were sent home about 10 o'clock to be ready for next morning. And uh, two of us did a patrol, Ted Carroll from Wellington, who are unfortunately not with us now, and myself, and we did the patrols. And thank God we missed the Jap fleet. Um, Catalina had spotted them only so many hundred miles from uh, Salon the day before. So they apparently knew it was going to happen. And uh, luckily I was back a bit earlier than Ted Carroll. And uh, I was about to have breakfast. And we heard this sort of roar of engines. Sure enough, the, the CO said, hell, that's, that's loud thunder. You go outside and here was a 140 planes attack, about to attack. And uh, Ted Carroll came back and, and he saw them and he went down to sea level and he flew 20 miles down and landed on the beach 20 miles south of Colombo and luckily got away with it by a miracle. Uh, he, 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 he wasn't picked up. And uh, so the, anyway, they raided uh, Rat Balana, which was the drone, still is the main drone for Salon. And... Uh, they divided into two groups and they bombed about oh, 40 to 50 uh, bombed us at, at uh, the aerodrome and luckily at the side of the drome were three skeletons of uh, flying fortresses, fortresses who had earlier attempt to take off from uh, overload tanks <coughs> to fly to Indonesia which was um, just before they attacked that area and uh, the, the uh, flying fortress had been stripped of virtually everything just the skeleton frames and they were raiding, raiding us and we were in the trenches by this time and, uh, and when the CO mentioned there was loud thunder and he said good Christ no he said they're Japs and he ripped down to the aerodrome I, I had a Norton motorbike, which I followed him, and fell off at the last moment and jumped into a trench. And by this time, the, luckily, the uh, Japs had changed their uh, attack to these three skeletons at the side of the drone, thinking they were serviceable, maybe, and uh, spent a hell of a lot of energy uh, bombing them, which they never hit, never hit one. So uh, then they attacked the... Uh, 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 race course which was uh, there, there was a squadron of Blenheims which were not serviceable and the, the other third uh, attacked the Colombo city the, the, the harbour and the, and the city itself so uh, that caused absolute chaos uh, they did a lot of damage but they, they um, and by a fluke we had wonderful protection. At, the, at that, just before that time, Singapore had fallen to the Japs, and England had to do something desperate to try and save Singapore. And this is rather a wonderful thing they did. They had two aircraft, modern aircraft carriers, the Indomitable and the Indefatigable. Hellish name, but they were very modern aircraft carriers. And on board those. Uh, two uh, aircraft carriers 
they put enough spare parts to assemble 12 aeroplanes, hurricanes, which they did. They went around the Cape of Good Hope, and by the time they got to in the vicinity of Ceylon, they were going hopefully to Singapore to save Singapore. Singapore had fallen. So they offloaded the squadron of hurricanes at Ceylon, and that obviously saved our situation. And the hurricanes took off, and they shot, because they're pretty obsolete planes off the Jap, they shot down 29 of their 150, uh, 140 uh, aeroplanes. So there was chaos in, in, in Colombo, you know, taken absolutely, in a sense, by surprise, and uh, a real, you know, uh, mix-up of everything. Nothing was sort of working out. And anyway, they did a lot of damage. Um, and then they actually thought that the Japs, they, they did have uh, probably the early uh, zero planes, but weren't up to hurricane standard. And uh, about two o'clock in the afternoon, the CO said, oh, good God, where are they? Uh, wildebeest, where, a big pardon, swordfish. Where are the swordfish? Because early in the morning they were supposed to take off from Trincomalee, fly to Colombo, refuel, and then go out and attack the Jap fleet, which of course would have been suicide in any case, poor devils. So anyway, uh, the CO sent me and my air gunner, I didn't even have a navigator, to find out if we could find where the uh, swordfish had got to. So they signaled Trincomalee and they said yes, they'd left at uh, 6 a.m. or something, uh, but never arrived. So we were sent out and we found the 12 of the um, swordfish all shot down about 5 or 10 miles north of Colombo Harbour. And uh, one, apparently one Jap plane had got in and shot the lot down. 36 Fleet Air Arm pilots and, and uh, crew and we, we used to live with them, so they were our good friends. And it was bloody hard to believe that they'd, they'd all been killed. By Three only lived. The rest were all killed. So that was just, you know, open slather. Uh, one, they had taken the old swordfish by surprise, had um, probably a thousand uh, pound um, depth charges or whatever on, on more bombs they would be on board. And of course, never used. So it was very sad. It must have been also quite um, uh, telling for you because you were in an older aircraft again and yeah. if they had no hope then... Well say so by a fluke I had I had landed and was about to have breakfast when they when they turned up so uh, I mean I was lucky I didn't strike them. But then uh, so there was, they had sent a lot of ships uh, from Trincomalee. It was a a, still a, a very big, lovely harbour, very deep and very, very well uh, protected by the sort of light hills round about, and uh, a boom over the entrance to the, to the harbour. It was quite a, quite a narrow entrance, so it was a very, a very safe uh, uh, harbour, really. But we were always concerned when the Queen Mary or when the big ships were in that the Japs would arrive by uh, submarine or something. Though, of course, they 
couldn't get into the harbour because of the boom, but you don't know what the hell they could do. So it was really a very interesting uh, stage of activities. So that, that attack, um, did they continue attacking after that, or was it just a one-off? No, uh, we didn't know what was going to happen, but we were on the alert, thought that they would attack uh, after having tech attacked Colombo on the uh, Easter Sunday morning, uh, we felt they might come and attack Trincomalee. But see, they'd lost 29 of their planes and obviously some more damaged, but they, they'd probably still, I don't know, they might have had 100 serviceable planes still. And uh, luckily, and no, nobody flew on that. Oh, now the following Wednesday, we found out that they were going to attack Trincomalee on the other side, on the east coast. So we were on the alert, but uh, didn't have any. They had the hurricanes once again. They were depleted a certain amount because I, I think they lost about eleven uh, hurricanes shot down. Oh, you know. I, oh, now I beg your pardon. Not not eleven. There was only 11 that attacked. They must have only lost one, I think, or two. Uh, but there was the balance of the squadron took off, and they, and they uh, but they didn't. In the end, they didn't fly because they knew they had no show of having a big victory. And anyway, they. Uh, I, might, I might have my numbers mixed up there. Anyway, say so thank goodness. No, nobody did get shot down because they, they didn't fly, but they sunk several ships. And one of them was a, the smallest and oldest aircraft carrier in the British fleet, the Hermes. And what they had done, but not soon enough, was take all the planes off, just a skeleton on board, and sent it to sea to sail to Australia for safety. And they got about five miles out and the, when the Japs uh, attacked and they, the Hermes was sunk, we could see her, she was out sitting half under the water for a day or two before it finally sank. And as an incident associated with that, a friend of mine from England who was out here as a military attaché to the um, Army, New Zealand attached to the army at that time of the war. Uh, he knew what, that I'd been in that incident, and a friend of this is in recent the last ten or twelve years. He had a, a very good friend coming to, for a holiday to New Zealand, and suggested he might come and see me. So I wrote back and said yes, by all means, and he came here to this house we were in then, and uh, said how his first cousin had been on the Hermes, which was sunk in the Indian Ocean. That's all he knew. And I was able to tell him within five miles of the point where the Hermes will still lie. So it was some sort of consolation to them to know where their relative had been actually killed. So it was a, a useful tip, actually. One thing that you mentioned before you started talking about the battle was that sometimes you borrowed the swordfish. Yeah. 
Can you tell me what the comparison was flying that with the compared with the wildebeest? Was very similar, very similar. Uh, the 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 more mo the, the wildebeest was the original uh, uh, plane. The swordfish had been updated a little bit, so they were probably probably a little faster. Other than that, no, virtually no difference. Fixed undercarriage, no fixed uh, repeller. Uh, though the, uh, some of the later later ones did have a, a modern engine in them, but no, the ones we flew were similar in in uh, performance. Ah, uh, Kashmir in India was a lovely place. Uh, on on the other side, Calcutta side, eastern side, Darjeeling up in Assam was nice, but nowhere nice as uh, Kashmir. Beautiful gardens. Best of everything English, you know. Uh, hotel was, although they were a bit primitive, but quite unusual. Mainly uh, sort of houseboats, but uh, it was very remote, and you'd have to we used to hitch a ride to, or oh, to Royal Pindia somewhere, and then get buses to very old old buses uh, through the very steep. Well, the you know start of the Himalayas really, and uh, treacherous roads, and when you got to Kashmir, it was really lovely and peaceful, and the food was good, everything was good, nothing much, other than the gardens and uh, nothing important, but still attractive for a holiday, peaceful and quiet, so we used to enjoy, uh, I'd twice there, but well that was a long way. And and then, uh, whereas, same as in Ceylon, it was very close to, to the to the hills and the lovely climate, but uh, Kashmir was a lovely climate, moderate climate, not not too hot. So it was quite an attraction if you could get there. And then the one trip, going back from the one holiday, I was hitching a ride in a a Blenheim aeroplane. Uh, well, they were all right, but nothing exciting at all. And this plane I got a hitch ride in was an, an English flight sergeant who had just come out from England uh, to uh, sort of uh, replace the crews who'd been out for so long. And uh, it was monsoon weather, and then the monsoon weather, it's just treacherous and hell. And uh, it was raining heavy, more or less, and uh, he made about five attempts to get in, overshot, missed the runway, and overshot, and in the end, I think he must, I, I was sitting up more or less alongside of him on the step down to the nose where the navigator sat, and uh, nothing to hang on to, no straps, and uh, I couldn't say anything. Uh, I, was, I, I mean, I was quite an experienced pilot compared with him, but I couldn't even suggested it. He was the captain of the of the plane, so I couldn't interfere. And in the end, I'm sure he must have said to himself, I've got to land, sort of thing. And he went in, instead of touching down at the beginning of the runway, he touched down at the intersection of the crossroads, of the cross runway. And uh, probably 20 miles an hour too fast. And in, in the book, which I'll give you, uh, there's photographs of it, it ran off the runway, the sealed runway, and but on the runway there was 
probably two inches of water and the plane aquaplaned and just a ricocheted sort of went off then and you'll see the marks of where the wheels went through the mud slash and the plane turned over one and a half times and I being in the nose broke off in the nose the first t time over and I, all I got was a scratch on my on my hand I had nothing to hang on to it just happened you couldn't do it again in a million times but that's how things turn out sometimes and uh, uh, the plane finished up, of course, on its back, and the wireless operator, air gunner, was a an Australian chap, and he was strapped in, and as the plane finished up on its back, his turret was in the mud, the slush, and he almost, well, he was very badly hurt, and almost drowned, but he, he, he was taken to the hospital in Calcutta, and I went to see him, and he was in a bad way, but... I believe he did recover. So uh, a bit of a frightener though when, uh, when he obviously went in too fast and, and too dangerous. So that was one of my escapes I had. I'd, I was very lucky. I had my first landing, forced landing, was in Ceylon. Uh, I'd come back from leave from the hills and there was a aeroplane off the uh, battle cruiser. Oh, I'll think of it. I hope in a minute. A lovely ship uh, came into Colombo, Colombo, and uh, this was a plane that was sent back very badly shot up, and it was there to be taken back to, to be flown back to Trincomalee for a complete overhaul, and I'd never flown them. Nobody else had. Had flown the by the fleet here, I mean, guys. I decided I'd fly it back to Trincomalee rather than do an overnight journey. So I sat in the cockpit and worked things out. There went it wasn't a hell of a lot to work out because it went it wasn't a very a very obsolete plane, and uh, I got the airman got it going and I took off. I authorized myself as I was then a senior pilot to uh, to fly it, and uh, started up. Uh, and took off and had to wind the wheels up. And the wheels were manual, no no hydraulics, and you had to wind a very stiff uh, arm. Uh, I, I counted it on, on the way down, how many turns it was, and a real hard turn. To, uh, you really needed a navigator or somebody to do it for you, and, uh, but I, I was on my own, so I had to do it myself. I got about two thirds of the way across Ceylon. Luckily, I'd flown over the, the mountains, such as they are, up to about 9,000 feet, and over the jungle. And I was in the area which, from that area north of uh, Ceylon, the area was virtually covered in coconut palms. And there was no clearings within Kui. And the roads were only sand tracks. And you had no show landing a plane because it was winding and and dangerous with the uh, overhang of the uh, coconut palms. And I didn't know what the hell to do, but it was a time when you had to make a quick decision, which I had to do and did. And I decided to wind the undercarriage down and, and uh, I landed on water. And what they have, uh, what they call tanks, are little dams that fill up in the monsoon weather 
for use in the dry weather. And so I wound my undercarriage down and I landed on water and got away with it. And I, so I taxied to the shallow end and uh, locked the plane. There's a, strangely enough, there's a lock on the door and uh, left the plane because I had uh, uh, hundreds of natives come gather. They'd never seen a plane at close quarters before. And anyway, I didn't know what to do. Uh, they didn't speak any English and just lived primitive looking after their coconuts. And anyway, uh, I was able to sort of talk to a chap with a bullock wagon and I, I paid him so much and we headed for somewhere, hopefully the sea. And we, we did all that afternoon, came to dark, had to stop for the night of course, and I slept in a uh, thatched hut and I had the native food, curry, very hot curry, and I, I didn't drink their obviously contaminated water, so I drank coconut uh, juice, and that survived me through. And the next day, he wouldn't, he wouldn't go any further. I didn't know what to do. I hired, I didn't hire, I bought a push bike, and I pedaled 40 miles on the sand track, to, and I struck the coast. And the first guy I sort of spoke to was a Malaysian uh, uh, officer on uh, duty for uh, customs or duty uh, patrol. And uh, he rang through to Trikamali and they came and got me in a uh, jeep and took me back to Trikamali. And the plane was then they decided that they would go and hope to recover it, which they did. I went with them, we found the plane, and filled up. they filled up their holes as much as they could, and the, the tank with oil, and uh, an experienced fleet aeroplane pilot who, who went with us, flew it off, and uh, landed at Trinca Malay. It, this is quite a story. It was then completely overhauled, and that same pilot was testing it, and it blew up in there, and he was killed. And that blade over there is one of the four blades of the propeller. And that was a foot longer and the, the, the top foot was broken and the tradesman in the uh, Air Force shaped it up for me like uh, natural, but it's a foot shorter than it should be. And strangely enough, the old walrus amphibian had a four-bladed propeller which was behind the where you sat and it, it pushed the plane. The other propellers on all the other planes pulled the plane. This was from the back and it pushed. And uh, I said, that, that was the, one of the four blades off the... And I had that, as you'll see, cut in half so it'd go in my package uh, case and I took it through the wall with me. So uh, it's been about also for a while. And I had the, the base was made here in Hamilton and they glued it together and it's quite effective there, quite a nice souvenir. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I've got other, few, I had a lot of souvenirs. I had a parachute which I gave to Wigram. Uh, uh, unluckily, I would love to have done a parachute jump, but I, I, I didn't, but thank goodness I never had to, but it would be something nice to have behind you. And I had uh, 
two revolver, a Smith and Wesson, Smith and Weston, and a Colt automatic. And I gave them to a friend who worked with me in the loan and Merck on permanent loan. Unfortunately, he died a young man. I never got them back. And I had, from the maintenance unit I was on in Calcutta and in Burma, I managed to gather five Spitfire clocks. And uh, I brought them home. I had four brothers. I gave them one each. I don't know what happened in the end. And there's one here somewhere that would maybe be taken downstairs now for safety. And I, I've got a, also a uh, navigation clock out of a fairy fulmar, which was a, a bigger clock, but, clock, but similar. And uh, what else did I have? I've done quite a few different uh, knick-knack souvenirs, so I've sort of got my uh, memorabilia from those years still down, down the stairs for safety. Right. So how did you get um, into the test flying then? When were you posted up to India? I've been 19, 1943. 1943. And then I, I spent about... I think 21 months in, in India. In India itself, I was only at Karachi for a short while and in Calcutta. Uh, then after that, I was in, in Burma most of the time uh, and some of the time in Calcutta. And in the book I'll show you, there's uh, quite amazing. They, they were short of drones. They're short of most things in India those days. Uh, pretty backward. And... Uh, uh, when I went to Karachi, I was called aerodrome inspection officer, but the only trouble is they hardly ever had new aerodromes to inspect. But the one they did have, quite unbelievable, right in the centre of Calcutta, the main street was called Chowringi. Within 50 yards of that, a parallel street called Red Road. And that was where the banks were, and other buildings, and running through a park. And uh, at one point, they decided they were short of drones. And the, from Delhi, they uh, decided to come to Calcutta inspect, and inspect this red road as an aerodrome. And they approved, uh, thought it was okay. They asked me if I could land a hurricane there. So I said, I'm sure I can. And I, I landed a hurricane there five times. And then later on, that was repeated with Spitfires, and that's where the maintenance units were, right in the centre of Calcutta. And when you're taking off, the buildings were, you know, high, some of the buildings were quite high, but, you know, 10 or 12 storeys, maybe, if, if that, but certainly, you know, quite big buildings. And as you're taking off, you're flying past the people waving to you in the offices. Hard to believe that, that it was so much in the centre. May and Baker and they were the sort of forerunner to penicillin okay. that sort of thing and uh, when the pills were issued to doctors they had to account for every pill why they and how they who they gave it to and this this is bloody hard to believe to say what a silly bloody war it was in a sense I went back to I went on to England left him of course before I went to India and Burma, I left him in Ceylon. 
and obviously lost touch with him. One day at Hendon, I just come back from the Middle East and I was signing a plane off, Form 700, a bloody great thing, with 30 odd columns you had initial, and a chap slapped me on the shoulder. He said, Mackenzie, you bastard, just joking, thank goodness. And uh, anyway, it turned out after I'd left Salon, he returned to England and was sent to Canada as the doctor in the Air Force. And he had, in Salon, he had had these pills issued to him as the doctor. He hadn't, being Irish, he hadn't accounted for any of them. And he was recalled from bloody Canada to England to answer to a court of inquiry. And he'd landed, he'd landed somewhere over, from overseas and he then flew to Hendon to attend the inquiry in London. And he, he saw me, and I used to have a, a bit of a, a little mould on the side of my... I said, how the hell... I mean, he only sort of came from behind. He said, how the hell did... I said, how the hell do you know? Oh, he said, there's only one person in the world had a buddy... Uh, what's the name like that? He said, I knew, I knew it was you. <laughs> and so I don't know what happened. We had a few points and left him, and uh, I don't know what ever happened to him. But he was a character. And he used to... And we go, we go in here. You'll see the big big rock, massive like Mount uh, in Australia. Oh, yeah. There's rock. Uh, there's rock. Yeah, yeah. That that type of thing. And uh, we'd go there because there used to be a lovely rest house there. You'd go and have good meals and uh, a couple of days break. And he'd be chugging along in his little Morris Eight, the 1935 Morris Eight, little round. And uh, the, the guys that, you know, on the road are mainly bullock wagons, no bugger all cars. And he, the old driver would be nodding and he'd stop the uh, car, get out and turn the buddy uh, wagon around the wrong way. So the, he'd finish up in his sleep back where he come from or wherever he woke up. And then he used to, another one, rather a dirty thing to do, he used to, the, the axle had a big pin, a flat pin, to hold the wheel dropping off. And now and again, for a bit extra fun, he'd pull the bloody pin out and keep, keep going. We wouldn't see the outcome. Oh, then what he also used to do, he used to go down to Colombo for doctor's meetings or whatever, in his little Morris, and he'd see how close he could get to a rickshaw without hitting him. But this one day he did hit him, and smashed the bloody rickshaw and the, the passenger panicked apparently and uh, anyway the, the police came took up the issue and fined the bloody uh, rickshaw driver for not keeping to the side of the road and uh, the old doctor wasn't even charged and uh, he said but oh Christ he said uh, my conscience picked me he said I went and paid his fine <laughs> so that was Doc Rose he was, I, See, the, lovely if you can meet up with those guys and find out what did happen after. Yeah. Another doctor, I went since the war with my wife and her uh, sister, his, her sister, and we, I went to the uh, Lake District in, in England. We went for a, a trip and uh, coming when I got to England, I looked him up, a hell of a nice chap, I went with him, he was in charge of, in, back in civilian life, of a uh, prisoner of war camp. 
And on the one day I had to go in civic clothes, of course, went with him to this, uh, what's the name? And uh, mainly German prisoners. And one, one was Admiral Donuts. And because uh, I, I kept in the background sort of thing. And uh, so he, when he, on oh, then later still, I went to Lakeside and I knew the house. I got a photograph of it in the book somewhere. A big two-storied house, which was different. So I saw the house and recognised it as his. And I went nobody home. In the end, I went to the chemist shop. I thought they'll know where the doctor is. And they said, "Oh yes, you're bloody unlucky. He's just in in uh, Portugal for three weeks holiday." So I never caught up with him. But say, nice if you could catch up and find out what happened in later years. Yeah. But I was going to tell you before. Some of the silly bloody things that happen. Now, we were in Ceylon and we got British Army rations for our living. And uh, tea, Ceylon would be the biggest tea producer in the world. We used to get Kenyan tea sent from Kenya to England and back to Ceylon. Now, how bloody silly can you be? And it could have been something useful they could have replaced it with. Whereas all the bloody tea you ever wanted was in Ceylon. <laughs> That's typical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, but say because they supplied the ration, you got bloody Kenyan, that tea must have a big supply from probably closer than than England, than uh, Ceylon to England. There was something else too, same type of thing, which is bloody absurd. But there you are. You know, of course, you're talking of Air Force records. In London, the Air Force records were kept at Ryslip in London. A suburb, and uh, when I when I got shot down with Lady Mountbatten, I I got an immediate award of the Air Force Cross, and the one uh, CO of mine in, in Allahabad, his name was hyphenated Nolan Nayland, Nolan Nayland, wing commander. I was very good friends with him. When I left to go to England, he said. He said, there should be an Air Force cross waiting for you. I've recommended, he'd recommended me. But India was called a Forgotten Army and Air Force. And I mentioned on the air, just on the program the other day, and that, that applied that, you know, they got bugger all uh, acknowledgement or recognition, and I never got it. But why I say that, when I got the, that uh, award, they knew all my bloody details from how many hours I'd flown at that when I was in charge of that unit in Burma, 634 hours. Now that must have all come from their records at Ryslip. And that must have come from when Nolan Nolan had recommended me to, give, to tell him those hours. So uh, they kept bloody good records. Yeah. Yeah. So out of all the aircraft you flew, what was the most interesting? Without doubt, Spitfire and uh, Mosquito. But I mean, obviously they were the two. But uh, I mean, I used to, what a two old, an Ordex, I flew a, a Hawker Ordex, uh, only just to say I'd flown it sort of thing. And I used to uh, fly anything that was sort of safe to fly, but there you are, the bloody old uh, amphibian walrus wasn't that safe. I knew, it, I knew it was in bad shape, but I thought it's only an hour's bloody flying. I took the chance rather than do an overnight trip. 
But the, I mean, when you're young and silly, you do those things. Hopefully, success. But see, that's where I touch wood. I was bloody lucky. In uh, in Burma, some of the room was just paddy fields with the buds or divisions taken out and flattened. And the soil was very white, a lot of sort of clay white. And when when you uh, took off, you got a cloud of smoke. And the, the Japs were only over the hills. And if they were flying, they'd see that cloud and know there's a plane just taking off and pounce on them sometimes, no doubt it happened. And uh, you see, the, I was there when Wingate's expedition went in the second time. And uh, we flew in, if we're going into Burma, we'd take certain rations for them to a depot and they'd go on further later. And when the big landing happened, uh, the Yanks went in. They uh, uh, were just, uh, say, clouds of, of what's the name, and the, the Japs would pick them up. Another thing the rotten swines did, they stretched wires over some of the valleys where the, the, the uh, hurricanes would fly down for safety, and they found out that that was happening. Planes never came back. So such is war. Yeah. Now, oh, anyway, they, they landed. They landed their force 120 miles behind the Jap line. And they were there five days before the Japs attacked them. So they don't know if the Japs didn't know or didn't want to know to, at that point. And uh, then, then they attacked them. Uh, uh, they, they called the aerodrome... Oh, shit, what's the main street in New York? Broadway. Eh? Broadway? Yeah, uh, yeah, Broadway. Yeah. Broadway. And that, that drone was called Broadway. I, n I never went there, unfortunately. Uh, but that, that was quite an event. Oh, now, the first, one of the first gliders that went in had three quarters of it load was a bulldozer. And the pilot was either, I can never remember, either Jackie Coogan or J James Cagney, film actors. I can never remember which one it was. And they, but he crashed about 100 yards short of the runway and in the jungle and they had to send a, a replacement, what's the name? But the Yanks went in in a big way, formed, formed a, a runway and got established there, 125 miles behind the Jap lines. So uh, they were a bit slow on the uptake there. Unfortunately, this is where the tape ran out, and there's no more for this uh, interview. Um, for the record, it was Jackie Coogan who was the glider pilot that uh, Don was talking about. Don had quite a extensive uh, career flying in Britain and Europe as well, and uh, all of this story he wrote down in a book. And that book he actually gave me permission to put online, so I, I hope to put that online someday. Uh, I have all the photographs, and I'll put some of his photographs uh, up with this uh, with this episode. You'll find it on the show page. But uh, yeah, he was a great man, and I could have listened to him for hours. Uh, I, I had several more long conversations with him uh, after this, and uh, yeah, a, a very, very nice gentleman. And uh, he certainly had a very interesting logbook and uh, a very, very interesting career. 
And that's uh, that's it for this uh, Wings Over New Zealand show. We'll be back in a week's time, hopefully, with another Wings Over Australia episode. That was the Wings Over New Zealand show with Dave Homewood.